1: Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
2: Hey, this is Peter Kafka, back from CES, uh, where I saw a bunch of you guys. Thanks for saying hello. Thanks for telling me you like listening to Recode Media. I love hearing it. Uh, Quick note about today's podcast. I recorded this about a week ago with Dan Premack from Axios. He's great. This is a very good podcast. Uh, Just one timing note. When we recorded this, we were speculating about whether companies would want to emulate the Spotify direct listing IPO. We talk about that at length since we've recorded this news is broken that slack is probably going to do that so just so you know we're not in a total bubble we're aware of what's going on um that's enough of me talking you should hear dan talking to me it's much better all right enjoy the show this is recode media with peter Kafka. that is me i'm part of the vox media podcast network talking to you from new york city at our headquarters here i'm here with dan premack sure Premack. For Mac, that's I just good. think of you as Dan, the guy I've read forever. That's fine. That works. Thanks for coming, man. Thanks for having me. I do not see you nearly enough, so thank you for coming.
3: I know this is a really impressive setup. I was in the box offices years ago, and they did not look like this.
2: Yeah, and it's clean. It's vacuumed. That's a fake plant.
3: Oh, it's nice.
2: Um, there's a video feed here for reasons I don't understand. I don't either, but I can see myself. It's exciting. Thanks for coming. You are uh, one of my favorite reporters. Oh, that's kind of you to say. That's the end of the podcast. And and now you're apparently going to rip me to shreds. That's that, that's just like buttering me up. No, no, we don't rip anyone to shreds on the podcast. We do behind their back. Uh, I started reading when you were publishing a, like a PE newsletter
3: at Reuters. Yeah. First, Thompson Financial, which ended up buying Reuters. But yeah, I mean starting in 2002 I think was my, when I started doing a newsletter. And then Fortune. Then Fortune uh, for now, six years. And, and now Axios. And now
2: Axios. Um, I think of you as one of the guys who would be successful wherever you went um, because you have built this following of being a really plugged-in guy in in business. Beyond business in in the investing world um, and has built up a personal brand and back a couple years ago when everyone was very interested in the idea of star journalists going and creating their own thing, you should have been one of those guys.
3: Yeah, I thought— What happened? Okay, so there, there's a, some history. So go back maybe 10 years or so, I was going to do my own thing. In fact, I was going to do uh, what became—so maybe more now, maybe 13 years— going to do what became VentureBeat, actually, uh, with Matt Marshall, who had been at, uh, I guess, the San Jose Mercury oh, News so at the time. that's way longer than 10 years way, ago. Way, way longer than 10 years ago. Uh, so— he and I were going to do that together, uh, and then I was at Reuters, and Reuters very clearly informed me they were going to sue the hell out of me if I did that when they found out. Um, Beca- sue you because? Sue me because when Tom- – so Thompson Financial buys Reuters, and when that – shortly after that happened, uh, the company relisted the New York Stock Exchange. And like every employee of a big company, you get a new like code of conduct or terms mm-hmm. of service or whatever, and you sign it because you're an employee and you don't read it. And it turned out that one of the things in the thing I had signed was if I was a – advisor or executive or something like that of a competitor or a potential competitor, I was in violation of my contract, uh, which I didn't have a contract, but in violation of my employment, I guess. And uh, I most clearly was an, uh, an executive of something. We were trying to raise money. Uh, and there was a massive email trail on that. So I was uh, I, I was told in kind of no uncertain terms that that they might lose the case, but they would bankrupt me in the process.
2: Okay, so that's a reason to don't to go not bankrupt. do that. Don't and not do later, that. And then later, but, but you are a guy. Just to be clear, yeah. you've got it. You've you've had a newsletter forever. Mm-hmm. It, it moves around every yeah. couple years sure. when you need to go to a different job. You have a following. There's a core audience that really depends on you for for the information you provide. Um, so you certainly could leave one company, even if you did t- took zero members from that mailing list. Yeah. You could regenerate it. You've done it now. That's what we've done. Yes,
3: yeah. the old company is always on the list.
2: So you could have. Dan's Fun Email Business Newsletter tomorrow if you wanted.
3: I could. I could move in with Ben in Singapore, and it would be great. Let's, I, let's figure out a better name than Ben's Fun Email Newsletter. Yeah, yeah. I, it's— I could. I think, to be honest, I like having colleagues. I yeah. mean, that's a big part of it, right? So I'm a journalist, you know, at heart. And I like bouncing ideas off people I work with. Uh, I like talking to them. I like, you know, I, I like working with other really smart people. Uh, it's what I enjoyed a lot of Fortune. It's the reason I joined Axios. Um, and, and I think that's probably the reason I don't do it. I work alone a lot, right? So I work out of my house and I'm in Boston, whereas in this case, my colleagues are in D.C. and New York and San Francisco. Yeah, but I like working with people. I I like uh, I like being part of something bigger, I think.
2: So we're gonna talk a bunch about the media business, because that's what this podcast is about. But let's let's go macro sure. for a bit. We're recording this at the very beginning of 2019. Stock markets up, stock markets down. There is a debate about whether what, what what that means for the economy or how tethered the economy is. Prognosticate for us.
3: What is twenty nineteen gonna look like overall for the economy? Oh, that's a great question that I, I I will admit that I can't quite answer. I, I, I'm i glad that I kind of predicted that the market would turn bearish at the end of last year, which it did. Um, I, look, I don't think it's going to be a great year for the economy. I just don't think it is. I, I'm a – measured by people working and people spending at money? At least in terms of stocks and probably GDP. I mean, and look, that's conventional wisdom, right? Stocks are probably not going to have a great year. The GDP in 2019 is going to be lower than whatever it becomes in 2018. Look, I, I'm a general believer in cycles, right? I'm old enough that I've been through a couple. Um I was living here in New York in uh, whatever it was, I guess, 99 and 2000 when people were talking about the end of cycles and there was, you know, the rooftop parties every night and stuff like that. And, you know, nothing's ever going to change. And when it changed, it changed fast. You don't usually know why uh, the change is coming except you know what's going to come. And and I subscribe to that. That said – there have been people who have predict, been predicting the end of this boom for, what, six years, yeah. seven years? Uh, so
2: retroactively, I, I, right? Retro, Dot-com boom, you can go back and yeah. go, all right, well, that was crazy what we were doing with sure. the globe.com. And retroactively after 2008, you go, holy shit. Who, did you know what a derivative swap was? <laughs> right. Now we do. Um, when this, Assuming we reach an end of a cycle, whenever that comes, what is the cause of that or is that just – that's just the earth turning around on its axis.
3: I think it's more the earth turning on its axis but look we're we're seeing signs of slowdowns in global growth, right? Whatever you want to say about Apple and is it you know the fault of the iPhone or the fault of you know trade tensions? The reality is the Chinese economy is growing really fast, but it is growing slower than it was before. That's a big deal. You're seeing that in other countries. We'll see what ultimately happens with Brexit. We'll see what ultimately happens with our trade negotiations. but I, I think there is a slowing of the global economy and I think therefore that that is a slowing, that's what happens. People will want to blame Trump,
2: um, because it's easy to, and and usually accurate
3: to blame Trump for many things, is that fair in this case? It depends what exactly happens. It'll be fair if we ultimately end up in an actual trade war Uh, Wilbur Ross was on CNBC today, and he said there's only two things that happen, ultimately, with with the trade conflict with China, which is either they get some sort of deal, and very few people seem to think they're gonna get one that's beyond window dressing, and if I'm proven wrong, fantastic. Or we're just going to have increased tariffs going both ways for a while. That's not going to be good for the global economy for us or for them. And that will, yeah, that'll be Trump's fault if that happens.
2: And if it's not Trump's fault, it's just – this is you, you. Whatever economic problems we have were sowed six years ago or eight years ago, Absolutely. or, or Look, just a natural. It, it is ending. we.
3: You know we we don't have a huge cushion. You know there's all this talk about the Fed. So we you know historically when we've had major economic problems, the Fed has been able to not fix them, but has been able to help out by you know lowering rates. Even we don't really have a huge cushion there. Uh, companies have raised hu- put huge amounts of leverage on their balance sheets, and that's not just a private equity retail story. That's kind of across the board. That limits flexibility as well, and and also we are close to full employment. So there there is a point, particularly as immigration is not you know we're not really increasing the amount of legal immigration. That that on its own at some point slows down. And is
2: this your number one focus every day when you're up you're up and typing?
3: My number one focus is probably deals more than anything else, yeah. M&A, venture capital, things like that. Someone's
2: buying something.
3: Someone's buying something, and why did they buy it?
2: And what percentage of what you're writing about is, I ferreted out this thing, and it's a scoop. I'm going to write about it versus this is a $71 billion medical technology deal that got announced this morning.
3: I should say something about it. It's preferably the former. I think most days it's probably a combination of the two, right? It's a $71 million pharma merger. And I know something about it nobody's reported yet. And so I'm, I'm going to write the headline that everybody's seen. And here's an item and a piece of it, whether that's some backstory, whether that's a financial detail or something like that that, that hasn't been out. And that's, that's, to me, kind of when it's working the best.
2: Because a lot – and we can talk a lot about Axios, we will. But a lot of their brand is – some of it is scoops. Here's a uh, hot <laughs> new thing you haven't heard. But a lot of it is – these 10 things happened, and you probably didn't read about them, and we're just going to provide links. Uh, we're going to write very brief synopsis of it. We'll provide maybe a line of analysis, and we're going to save you time. That, that's yeah. the whole Mike Allen rap, right? We're saving you time. So how do you balance – I know this arcane detail. or I know this one really interesting detail about a deal that, frankly, probably only a minority of you care about versus – there's a lot of you who don't know very much about a lot of things. I'm going to tell you a, a bit about it all, about of all of it.
3: Yeah. Well, so my newsletter, which is Pro Rata, which, which is my daily, uh, is structured a little differently than most of the Axios newsletters, and and that's kind of just historical, just because I've it's, it's what a, you've it, done. It's what I've done. Uh, it, it's different than the past ones. There's different pieces to it, but it, it the a bunch of it's the same. Which is there are news blurbs in it. You know, maybe 30 or 40, depending on the day, and those are really short, and those are those are linked out to other places because I'm not going to analyze 40 deals in a day, and no one wants to read that. Uh, in general, though, I want to my goal goal with this newsletter is the same as it's been with any other, and I think it's the true for most of the newsletter writers at Axios, and we've got over a dozen of them now. I want to tell a reader something they don't know yet, uh, and, and and I want to give them – I want to make them feel smart when they get to work and feel yeah. like they're ready to do their jobs and when they get to the – two things, like they don't
2: know most things, right? I mean, I mean this, we're getting a little nerdy on newsletter yeah. theory, but like – but, you know, there's four or five or six or seven media newsletters that come in my, sure. and I read half of them. And a lot of them are just like, here are the 20 things that happened yesterday. I want and to it's be saying, more than that. I, I want us to be more yeah. than that. I, I want you- But when there's you, a utility to there here's is. 20 things that you, because you were watching football. So you didn't right. know about this.
3: So I want you to be able to do two things. When you get to the water cooler in the morning, I don't want someone to tell you something that's happened that you're surprised by. Like, wow, I had not heard that. So I want that taken care of. And then I want you to be able, the reader, to introduce something to that person at the water cooler that they haven't heard before.
2: And you do all this solo, by the way. The newsletter, yeah, yeah, and yeah. there's that that whole list of deal stuff that comes into you. You're not going out and ferreting. I it's know, both.
3: Of uh, some of it comes into me. I've got. I, I think anyone who's done this long enough, I've got kind of a system. And look, I, I visit Recode. I yeah. visit you know the Times and the Journal and stuff like that. Go what do I have the, to
2: Hoover up for this thing?
3: Yeah, I go through the wires and I go through SEC filings. There's a there's a pattern. A lot of people certain things publish at certain times. There's certain things I check at eight a.m. and then at nine a.m. You know, but not in between. And
2: and and how long does it take you to physically construct this the newsletter? <laughs> Couple hours.
3: That's it. A Couple hours. Yeah.
2: What a lazy job
3: you have. It's, it's awful. What I mean, I, I'm up at five forty-five. I'm probably at my desk by 6.05 or something like that. But in the me- in the middle of this, I'm making my kid breakfast and yeah. getting her to school. And you know, not when I'm in New York. New York, it got out a little earlier today, and that's because I'm not doing those other things. I said uh, three hours, beginning to end.
2: Let's. I want to go back to the, the business of Axios in a bit, but let's let's go, let's let's go from macro to minor the mm-hmm. media business. Um, what is different about the media economy versus the general global economy? Are they the exact it's same It's worse, thing?
3: right? I mean somebody – and I'm going to screw this up. I think somebody said that in December if you looked at, at the job numbers, right? You had this blowout jobs number, this macro job number. Information technology or kind of the information sector was the one area that shrunk. You'd probably know this better than me. But in terms of humans, it shrunk um, in December. Um, I, I think it, it's just not as strong, right? And, and it's partially because we don't have – necessarily the same sort of innovations, right? Like we come up with new companies and we might have innovations around model and business model, but, you know, we don't have the, you know, you know, the, we, we don't have the next type of car or the next type of smartphone or chip that goes in, you know, we don't. It's just right. an industry. We don't have that. So right. we Netflix don't get created a new thing. A new category. Yeah. But,
2: but but a lot of it, you know, Fox and, and Disney combining is going to be a shrinking business. It right? is. It, they're not going to be a bigger business. Yep. They might tell you otherwise, <laughs> but it's going to be a smaller business. I don't know. I
3: was just in Disney World. They seem to be doing very well on that side of the they thing. They took a lot so, of they your money. They took a lot of my money. Yeah. So yeah. really, the the online media money is apparently going to, to the theme parks.
2: I do feel, I mean, because journalists are, are consumed with themselves. Absolutely. Natural. Um, they also tend to not understand business very well, mm-hmm. I found, which is kind of good for me because <laughs> I, I don't understand it very well, but I understand it marginally better than than some of them. Uh, and they'll write about the media apocalypse of 2018. Sure. And when, when you stand back – It wasn't bad. Right. It's a couple of venture-backed businesses Mike that were that. relatively Mike, Mike high profile. Yeah, It's not much money, mm. right? They no. raise – I mean if you're a person who was employed at Mike, it's terrible. And if you're a person who maybe gave them some of the $60 million, it's not great, although you probably have deployed a lot more than that a lot but of But it's beyond places.
3: that, right? Like, I mean, you know, all the stories, BuzzFeed and Vice, which are the two that get talked yeah. about so much in addition to Mike, right? BuzzFeed was it missed its own revenue target. Let me tell you, I, I can't speak to Recode. I know for us, if we had ha- now, granted, we don't have the same number of employees, and we yeah. didn't have that target. They made a lot of money last year, at least in revenue, top line money yep. last year. You know, Vice, it's got valuation problems. It's still a really highly valued company for a media for an you know online slash streaming, whatever you want to call Vice. I like, notice this all the time when I read that the the, the, lit- the litany of terrible
2: things that happen in media, and they BuzzFeed missed their numbers. Like, yeah. they made a lot
3: of money. Made a lot of money. Like again, granted, they wish they made more. Obviously, right. that that indicates that they misjudge certain things. But as online VC-backed media companies go, you wouldn't mind being BuzzFeed.
2: So let's focus a little more on that because I think a lot of – basically anyone who was getting funding over the last couple – well, most of them who were getting money over the last couple of years now looks back and goes, our peak valuation was 2015 and we're no longer worth what we thought we were worth and what our investors were worth back then. In a couple of cases, that's now public, right? Disney wrote down its valuation and vice what does that mean practically for the realities in business? You 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 know this you know this very well. What happens when a VC backed company is no longer worth as much
3: as the VCs thought? It freaks out employees. I think. I, I think you know. Look, and I don't think that online that media. VC-backed media company employees are necessarily different than a lot of VC-backed software employees, et cetera. They just don't write about themselves. They don't write about themselves. And maybe being the exception that a lot of those engineers say in the Valley have been through three or four of these. So they're surprised with how this works, you know, was six years ago as opposed to today. Uh, And I think that, look, Axios is a VC-backed company. We've raised money. Um, So I think people don't necessarily realize that, you know, the value of their stock can necessarily be worth less, particularly somebody who joined six months ago or a year ago. Uh, it's a, it's like any other company though, right? It's a morale thing. You you always – w- people have asked me, you know, what's the biggest difference in joining Axios and leaving Fortune? And the answer is it feels just morale-wise a lot different to be part of something growing as opposed to something shrinking. And I think when your valuation goes down, I, I think that kind of just permeates through everybody. And the big question I think in media is like if you're at software – you can always find a software company that's growing or that's getting an increased valuation if that's what's important. If, to, you're, at
2: soft, if you're a startup X and it turns out your equity is worth not very much or your company leaf. folds or gets sold, you can find somewhere else
3: to you work. You find one of you know a thousand companies. In media, it's a much harder. It's harder to do.
2: What What is uh, as someone who is frequently writing about other people's business journalism, mm. uh, what is the thing that that journalists misunderstand about business most often?
3: <sighs> that's an interesting question. I think journal... That's a good question. I don't have a great answer to, Peter.
2: You want to think about it? Yeah, let me think about that. Let me think about that. We'll be right back.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: We're back here with Dan Premack. Golda's out there blowing her nose. Hey, Golda. I made a laugh, too. Thanks for listening. Uh, we, left, we left on a... On a I cliffhanger, I was going yeah. to understand it, to criticize other journalists.
3: I think journalists, at least when it comes, not necessarily to business, but, but media business, I don't think they understand the business of media necessarily all that well. I, think I 100% a lot of, agree. I think a lot of journalists, you know, there's all the talk about the Chinese wall, right, between the business side yeah. and the editorial side. And I think that the majority, and, and maybe I'm overstating this, but that the majority of journalists therefore intentionally don't pay attention to what's used happening to be on the other side of the wall.
2: proud of not knowing how Absolutely. the business
3: worked. But then when something goes badly, they're absolutely shocked by it, absolutely shocked. And there's a lot of blame to go around. I I think – look, I I don't think the average reporter should be out there, you know, hitting the street and selling the ads and being in those meetings. But, man, I do think that you – particularly at at newer companies and younger companies, you need to know – both sides need to know what's happening on the other side.
2: I do think in the digital era – there are people in, in part because metrics that used to be either non-existent mm-hmm. or were kept from uh, the, yep. the editorial side are now very often very public. Uh, very often, you're being told to hit metrics. Um, I think people are at least aware of some sort of mechanism. They might misunderstand it. Um, this, I don't know when this is going to air, but there's this back and forth about uh, how Facebook feels about the New York Times, York yeah. Times feels about Facebook. Um, and I do think that something is particular to, I think, the Facebook slash media relationship is you did have reporters who had some knowledge or understanding of what Facebook was doing to their business, then reporting on Facebook, mm-hmm. the can Facebook I, folks being aware of that.
3: Can I say, I, I think also business, and I say this generally, not media business, yeah. I think business has an awful understanding of how media works or let me rephrase how reporters and how editorial works. And, you know, the, take the Facebook thing, right? This idea that there's this,
2: this is a, this is a story that, uh, that, uh, Dylan Byers yep. popped up and really like a two line story. Um, but it, Without Times any sourcing, into, I mean, well, well yeah. without on the record sourcing, right. saying. saying that the Facebook is uh, Facebook people are steamed at the New York Times. They feel that the New York Times is going after them and are doing so unfairly. Well,
3: doing so unfairly and doing so for kind of nefarious purposes. You know that it, I think the two things, right? That it, mainly that it was click driven. You know, so uh-huh. the the reporters at the Times are worried about their numbers, personal yeah. numbers, and therefore writing Facebook stories because they know that'll move their needles. It's just not how most reporters do things. I'm sure there are some that do. I, to my knowledge, at least from working with reporters, reporters like finding a good story and telling the story.
2: Yeah, there's a little bit more nuance, right? There, there literally have been, and I think are less so in the past, just because the business model doesn't work. People who are getting paid based on clicks.
3: But there's also people at the Times now who are dedicated Facebook reporters, which isn't something they're once. Right, was. I
2: think the I think the thing that is actually more truthful, and I think the Facebook people don't really get, is that you don't get paid based on clicks at the New York Times. You, by the way, they they are very interested in how their stories perform sure. socially. Maybe less so on how they convert, but it's they're certainly aware of it. It's that institutionally, you do get rewarded for big juicy stories that make something happen. Now, usually, if you've written a big juicy story that makes something happen, it means it was also an accurate story. Yep,
3: but you know, and and probably they, and they have negative, there's probably a negative piece too. Yeah, because it the, wasn't
2: what a great yeah. company Facebook is. Exactly. You don't win a Pulitzer for that. Um, but you know, for, for a long time, The Times was very interested in the Murdoch business. Um, Which, again, is a very important business to be covering. There's no shame in that. But institutionally, they were very consumed with Murdoch. Um, and you, it it wouldn't be unfair for someone at Facebook to go, Hey, you're suddenly focusing on us
3: with a lot of intensity that wasn't there before. Look, with great power comes great scrutiny, Mm -hmm. right? Facebook's, you know, pick the day as the number two or number three, most valuable company in the world. And, and look, and as for media, they, they're, they're not just a media company. They're the thing that a reporter goes home and they look at their feed to see, you know, the pictures of their kids or their friends, kids were like, it's part of everybody's life. So, you know, for Facebook to be surprised by this and look, it's been an awful year for them. I mean, an objectively awful year for them. Everything from politics to some of the stuff that's come out. Look, I think some of it's been a little overstated. I thought the Definer stuff was yeah. way overblown, but in general, it's been a bad year. And you know what? Facebook's had a decade plus run of generally positive coverage, and you know right. this, this is bound to happen. And, to
2: and you. if if you're in tech, uh, I think I think one difference in tech versus another in industry where you don't really understand how media works is that at least in startup tech and Silicon Valley tech is that you're used to primarily adulatory coverage, mm-hmm. um, getting positive stories written about you because you raised money, which yep. is a weird idea, but was very commonplace for a long time. And it's also a world in which you, again, this is true in most in most businesses, you know more about the story than the person writing about it. But not only that, in in the tech world, right, there's a whole slew of people who are not journalists, I'm putting air quotes around mm-hmm. it, but are writing in our public and are, uh, have a lot of influence. And um, I mean, I think it's a really interesting ecosystem but you don't need to depend on the New York Times to learn about Facebook because you might have an interesting VC blogging about it sure. or some random guy tweeting about it and all of that stuff and that comes random to guy
3: you. tweeting might have a not maybe the New York Times' audience but will have a very substantial audience
2: right and so you go well this is the idea that we have to pay attention I mean it's a different world where I don't know if you're doing plastic extrusions in New Jersey it
3: probably doesn't happen nope no look it's true it, look it, it's one of the reasons a lot of these companies didn't you know and Facebook a pretty good example of this. Years ago, didn't want to go public, right? And and, and the private-public thing isn't perfect, right? Uber is still private, and they've certainly gotten their share of scrutiny. Yeah. But this is a part of it, right? The the bigger you are, and the more out there you are, the more ripe for criticism you are, and it's a reason a lot of companies and CEOs. You know, I, I said for years that when Facebook decided to go public, that was going to push a bunch of other companies public as well. If, if Zuckerberg yeah. is willing to do it, man, I think what's happened to Facebook recently will cause some to reconsider so
2: let's let's talk about that again not strictly media but but important to a bunch of us the uh, conventional wisdom is this is the year that slack and uber and lyft and who else airbnb maybe we're all we're CRO. all going to go out um one we're recording this early january do you think that is still the case
3: Yeah, it should be. I mean, there's a huge variable, again, depending on when we're recording this, if the government shutdown ends. uh, Right now, you know, so Lyft and Uber, for example, have put in confidential filings with the SEC. There is no one to review them right now. Those people are home, not working. Uh, So those... Documents are sitting on a a desk somewhere. Uh, So assuming that we get our government back in the next couple of weeks, yeah, I think this should still be the year. And I think because you might not see huge volume numbers in terms of number of companies at the end, but those big ones like Uber particularly- Big brands you've heard of. Big brands you've heard of, those can go public in almost any market, right? Like if you were- you know, October, you know, if you're right in the middle of the Great Recession at the beginning of it, no, well, there's no reason to put yourself up for that volatility. But you look at some companies that have gone public in not great years. I don't think Facebook went public in a great year. Google didn't go public in a great but year. Just
2: tease that out. Why, why does it matter if you're Uber or Lyft or whomever, um, whether the market is good or bad when you decide to go out because you're a company, you're not the market. If people like your business. Yep. They're going to value it.
3: Uh, well, because if if overall valuations are down, you know you're going to get a comp, right? And it's weird because Uber and Lyft don't really have a comp out there except for each other. But the but Wall Street analysts are going to find a basket of companies and say, "Hey, Uber, you're in this basket." Yeah. And if that basket is down 20 percent from where it was a year ago, Uber's going to have to either overcome that or its value is going to be 20% less of where than it was a year ago. Or if the market's up, it gets to ride that. And you don't necessarily care about the stock price on day one per se except that that's less dilution for you and your employees and your share- and your current shareholders.
2: Let's, let's pursue this a little more um, because you and I are old, so we have seen waves of IPOs. I always like talking about how you used to go to sports bars and CNBC would be on the sports bar. That's true. Um, which again is bananas to think about now. Mm-hmm. What is the thing that pe- most people don't understand about how IPOs work and what they're supposed to do? Because we're going to see a bunch of it this year, most likely.
3: I think most people think that and this comes to kind of the first day uh, stock pop, right? There's always so much attention to did the stock go up? 10% Yeah. 10% or 20% or did it go up 100%? And that matters to a certain extent, right? Because, you know, if a company, if the stock price went up 200%, it left money on the, a lot of money on the table. In general, though, what you're trying, what the IPO is for is to give you more access to the capital markets later in life, right? You, it's easier to raise debt. It's easier to raise other equity. It also rewards, particularly if you were a startup, it rewards employees who might have been waiting, you know, in case of some of these companies, but eight years for money.
2: But we've been living in a world for quite some time now where these companies could raise money without going public where there's been liquidity for employees. Some liquidity for employees, depending on the company. Um, but you know, there's a lot of Uber gazillionaires out there, right?
3: There are based on the the deal that SoftBank did with them at the end of last year. But for years, Uber employees couldn't get out except at very onerous terms. Uber, the only way to get out was, and this is really in the weeds now, but was a tender through Uber. And, and I'm gonna make these numbers up because I don't remember them. But if Uber, if its last round was say $20 a share, Uber was saying to employees, yeah, we'll buy your stock at 15 a share. And by the way, if you've left, you're gonna have to pay a tax bill on that stock. So you either take our deal- you give up the stock, or you mm-hmm. probably go bankrupt.
2: But, but, but broadly, right? If 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 you were working for a successful Airbnb, Peloton, a real company yep. with with real prospects, it wasn't just a, a theoretical thing that they were hoping to float and flip. Um, does your life change very much? And it's a, similarly, as an investor, you've been able to sell those shares for some time.
3: Your life ne- doesn't necessarily change. I, I I think there's less there's less. I think you kind of now know, right, that that IPO is a weird thing. And so think of a company like Dropbox. I, I would bet that Dropbox, which has now been public maybe a little under a year, I think we write about it less. And mm-hmm. that's true for a lot of these companies. They get, for some reason, less attention once they become public because it's kind of like they've, they've matured. They've, they graduated college. They're and less now, sexy
2: for reporters. They're less sexy the for The flip reporters. side is that CNBC could not report
3: on them until they go public, essentially. That's true. But, but that's a separate, fewer a people very, are watching CNBC yes. than are reading all yes. the, the massive amount of tech, you know, media press out there. Your life doesn't change much. Look, it, it is a financing event. It is a liquidity event. It, it gives you a capital market. And there's some maturity to it, I think. Particularly if you're an enterprise company, it tells potential customers, oh, they're real. They're sticking around for a while. There's always a fear, even with a highly valued VC-backed company that's still private. You don't necessarily want to convert your entire system X over to them because what if they're gone tomorrow or in a year?
2: One more set of, of, of nerdy uh, IPO questions. Uh, Spotify went public mm-hmm. in this unique direct yep. listing way. Um th- why they did it is interesting. It seems like it has worked. It and did work. They are absolutely public. yep. Um, and then the, again, the conventional wisdom was this could work for a handful of other companies with widespread consumer brand recognition. Brand sure. recognition yeah. right? So this could work for an Airbnb, basically. Maybe, Airbnb, maybe Uber. Uber. Yeah. Do you think Pinterest has talked
3: about it? But right. I think that's a hard sell.
2: My colleague Teddy has said they're all looking at that. Do you they think are.
3: that's likely to happen? I think you'll probably see one, at least one, someone else try it. Yeah, I mean, if only because, you know, Teddy's right, Spotify, they've been on the phone with kind of... Every company you mentioned and more, they've been on the phone with and at least been taking inquiries. I think somebody else will try because, yeah, Spotify, the big question about Spotify was, was there going to be massive stock volatility after they – because they didn't really even price it after they went public. It's weird. again, the idea is IPO one of the things the banker
2: is supposed to do is supposed to smooth all this out. They're saying we're going to go out at $12 a share. Yep. It's going to go up. It's not going to go down. You're paying us a bunch of money to make that happen.
3: And it worked uh, and it worked and and you get and Spotify did, did,
2: didn't do that. They just said, here's what it is.
3: They didn't do that. And and the two big differences, I mean, there's a lot, as you said, one of the big differences is if you're an employee in that company, normally you have to wait, right? You have to wait maybe three months to be able to sell your stock. And that's true for existing investors too. the VCs. In the way Spotify did it, for the most part, everybody could have sold on day one or day two or day three. So there was huge fear of that volatility. And two, you don't have to pay the banker fees. Uh, But, you know, there there are some companies that will make the argument that while they hate the banker fees because no one likes paying a banker – that relationship is really valuable going forward, and and so they they're paying that fee now. But there's a that kind of proves to them the banker knows what they're doing. The banker's really invested in them, really understands their and you story. Want, and
2: that banker's important to you. Why? Once you because you're
3: going to do mergers with them, or you're going to do acquisitions with them, or you're going to do another equity raise or debt raise with them, and sometime in the future.
2: But it's hard for me to imagine. By the and, way, that's why,
3: that's why some banks. Will take discounts or won't even take a huge amount on the IPO because they want that relationship. Right,
2: traditionally, like it's a seven percent fee, but if you're an Uber or even a Spot, you're paying much less right. than that. Um, but again, it seems like it's funny. We have a, a ton of financial people who show up at our Code Conference, and the thing we hear from a lot of folks, and we love them all. And <laughs> the thing we hear from a lot of the, the the people who are operating companies is, those guys are great. But when it comes when I need to raise money or sell something, I, I can call them. I don't need to hang out with them. I don't need to have relationships with them. Um, There's some mild derision directed toward them. I don't know.
3: I think relationships matter. They still matter. I think so. Like, you know, if you're – it not – look, you're right. It, I'm not saying you're not you – know, if you're I, Uber, Goldman Sachs is always going to When I take need my call. dishwasher
2: fixed, I'm going to call a dishwasher guy. If I know him, great. But honestly, I just need my dishwasher fixed.
3: You do? OK. But if you – OK, I'm going to give you the example. And it, So uh, not my dishwasher guy. So my electrician happens to live down the street from me. Uh-huh. I don't have a plumber per se. So I do have – when I have an electrical problem, I know Matt down the street is going to come because I know him. I've used him before. I know yep. generally how long it takes him to respond. The plumber – I look on Google, and I don't know. That's going to take a while, and I'm sure I'll get somebody yep. competent in the end. It's a pain in the Shout ass. Shout out to
2: B&D Plumbing in, in uh, Brooklyn. Oh, there you can See, um, I, I don't have B&D them. Plumbing. I mean, yeah. I, it's way too far for them to travel for me. Yeah, I like B&D. Those are good guys. Um, are we – Are we? T- should we take another break, Golda? You're smiling. Yeah, let's take one more <laughs> break. We'll hear from an advertiser, and then we'll keep rambling.
1: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
2: This is Peter Kafka, here to endorse B&D Plumbing. I pay for my own money, I'm here with Dan still hanging out. Um, Let's talk about your current job, which you've been talking about on and off. You were at Fortune. Mm -hmm. I can think of a lot of good reasons to leave a Time Inc publication, especially when you left. Um, Why did you end up at Axios and how did that happen?
3: Uh, so Axios, uh, honestly, cause Mike Allen called, uh, and, and wanted, he was in Boston and he wanted to get together and have lunch. Uh, and I, to be honest, I missed his initial email. It went into spam. And did you know who Mike was? I did know who Mike was. I was a reader. I, I was a longtime fan. Uh, we didn't uh, know each uh, other. At Politico. Yeah, at Politico. Uh, and so, uh, we got together and had lunch. I knew they, he had left and Jim Vande Hy had left, uh, Politico and were launching at the time just something, right? I think the only media report was they were going to do something. Uh, and so Mike and I started talking a little bit about what they were thinking about, um, we kept talking. I covered both the RNC and the DNC conventions. That was summer of 16 for Fortune. Uh, and they were obviously all there at those. So talk to them a bit more. Uh, honestly, I left. I wanted to I liked the idea of two things. One, you know, I said earlier, working with smart people, I thought Jim and Mike and some of the other people they were putting together was just a smart group of folks who didn't really have a great idea of what they were planning to do at the time. But it was kind of like, let's figure this out together. And two, as a reporter, and, and you know this, you don't You get a bunch of chances if you want to join younger companies or more established companies. This was one of the first opportunities I'd really had to join something that didn't – truly didn't exist, was a true white space, and was being asked to help figure out what the hell they were going to do next. And – the pitch to you
2: was the do what you're doing but something else The also? pitch to me
3: was we're going to put together a bunch of smart people who kind of have niche expertise uh, to cover – at the time, the idea was cover uh, politics, healthcare, and business. Yeah. And let's figure out what, how we're going to make this thing work. That yeah. was the pitch.
2: My perception of it was these guys who created this thing with Politico. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a problem with, with uh, the founder. Yep. Um, which may have just come to simply down to like comp. And,
3: I think it and came equity. down, I, I mean, I think, and you know, you read about it and honestly, I haven't really yeah. had this conversation with Jim and Mike. I think it came down to the fact that he never wants to sell. They were kind right. of founders of a startup that was never right. going So they to were sell. never
2: going to realize the value they created. No. And basically they didn't want to say this because it's less sexy, but we, we want to build the thing we built again, maybe better and bigger. Sort of. But we want to be owners and we want to, yeah. sh- we want to, we want to create value and realize the value. And it's the reason
3: why every single employee has got equity. And that's a big deal, right? You know, you, they, we want everybody to be an owner of this thing. There is a counter. Our,
2: uh, Jessica Lesson does this the information. So I'm not paying people in equity. I'm paying them real money because, by the yeah, way, no, I don't want to sell it. Yeah, I think she's
3: uh, – she's that out. Well, look. I Obviously, we pay people salaries. Yeah. I make money. I've got a mortgage and I pay it and that's important. If I wasn't being paid a salary, yeah. I wouldn't take the job. Look, I think equity bring. <sighs> look, this is a startup thing, right? I think everybody it helps people not necessarily row in the same direction. You can disagree about things, and obviously certain people leave. but I think everybody realizes that what's good for you and what's good for the person you know, at the desk next to me is ultimately good for me. I think there's a value to that. and and I think we I think, you know, we talked earlier about, editorial folks not either knowing what's happening on the business side or maybe not caring what's happening on the business side, I think it makes everybody care a little bit more. Uh, We're internally a pretty transparent organization in terms of revenue and where we are in terms of sales goals and what we are in terms of product roadmap and why this product and not that product, et cetera. And I think most people, whether they're on advertising or editorial or, or engineering, care about those things and and there's a conversation. Yeah.
2: I like that part of the argument. I, I mean, I have found being a, a – I've been a very early startup employee and, and Vox is, I guess, theoretically a startup, startup yeah. um, is that there is a real asymmetry – one, in terms of how that, that equity is distributed, which sure. kind of makes sense, and then a giant information asymmetry. Whereas if you are part of a very small group, you actually know how the company is performing and what the share price looks like and what what a merger would look like. And everyone else has literally no idea and we will find out sort of when the deal is done. Yeah. And I think um, I've been told, roll in the same direction. To, but a, that's
3: a bad, like, can but, I that's, ask- but that's standard. Do and you not think most people at Vox know what the current, what the most recent round price per share was, and how that compares to their options? I guarantee you they do not. Well, that's a shame. They should. A 90, I, if, one, It's very difficult to get it. You'd have to know the
2: person to go ask. Yeah. You'd have to then demand it. You'd have to know what a four hundred nine A is and say, "I know there's a valuation. Please tell me."
3: Yeah, I, I can't speak. All I can speak to is Axios. Everybody, if they don't know the four hundred nine A, it's only because they forgot. Uh, they can find it in their email.
2: Yeah, unless oh, yeah. oh, so you guys put it in the email? I think that's. Well, I part don't know if it's
3: difference. in the email, but it's 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 publicly available. We we talk about it at our kind of all hands. That's part of the that's part of the conversation. And you know, if you were a new employer, you wanted to know yeah. it, you would simply ask the person, and they would tell because
2: you. Because what argument for, for for not getting into the weeds there is one we want to keep this relatively sure. tight. Two, we want you to do your job and not
3: be focusing on the share price, et cetera. But it's not a big piece of information. Right. It's a piece. Of, this is the 409A price. This is what it means. If you have more questions, ask me the questions.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. And then and then the third is slightly cynical, but I think also accurate, which is that that information asymmetry is built into the, the, the VC model, right? They expect that when you leave, you don't really understand what your options are aren't available or, or aren't considering... Uh, purchasing them because they want those to return to the pool it's for, for
3: one look I, again i I've only been part of one startup so I'm and I know I cover them and and I hear these yeah. stories i maybe maybe we're it, the exception to that, maybe other people actually think I'm wrong about this, but I know I had, we had a conversation at our last All Staff, which was, I think, over the summer, and we were talking about taxes, uh, taxes related to options. And I sat up there and did a and a with you know, whatever we had, you know, 100 yeah. employees, and they were asking me questions. You know, we were talking about the 409A price. What does that mean compared to, you know, the price you see headlined on the share price? If I was to leave the company, what would that mean? If the company was to be sold, what would that mean? For We had that conversation. Uh, we, we encouraged that conversation
2: we're we're in the weeds. Oh. I like it yeah. let's oh. we'll pull back a little bit. Um, when when you guys did launch part of the pitch to the investors had been, we're going to do this high-end subscription product. that um,
3: was I don't know if that was a pitch to the investors that was said on that was said on stage. No, no
2: it was absolutely said to the investors going to talk to them um and then we asked about it on stage. um but but it, and it by the way, it made sense. You'd have a free product that lots of people could use and then you could eventually have a high-end mm-hmm. pro uh, thing, which by the way is the political model it is. Seemed it didn't seem controversial at all. I think because we got Jim to say it was going to be ten thousand, which I think he was
3: just throwing out there to see what the reaction would be to ten thousand hey, dollars.
2: It would still it'd be a high price product. Um, you guys are a couple years into this mm-hmm. now. There is no high price product. Nope. There's no product at all. Nope. What 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 is well, the there's plan? There's what is the plan products. for a subscription product?
3: There isn't one right now. Honestly, why not? I, Uh, I think because we're continuing – we're building differently, I think, than we initially anticipated. Uh, I'm going to screw up this number, and I should have known it when I came in. We launched two new newsletters today, again, depending on when we um, broadcast this, which was one uh, daily on the markets and also daily on sports. I can tell you when we launched, we weren't planning to do a sports newsletter. Uh, We weren't planning a cybersecurity newsletter, which we have, and a bunch of other things. We're just growing a little bit differently than I think we initially anticipated. I I think eventually – you know, Jim's talked about how you do need to have subscription as part of kind of revenue stool for any media company like us – but there's no real rush to do it. We uh, we doubled revenue last year. We think w- the plan is to double revenue again this year. We've That's been primarily that.
2: from, from newsletters. That's the core problem. Primarily
3: from newsletters. We make money off of events. Uh, we've obviously got advertising. In, I mean, it's interesting. The newsletters are a big, huge piece of what we do. But we've got a website that you know has lots of ads on it. We make money off I of
2: that. I have noticed, and maybe maybe this is one off. You'll, you'll know. Um, that I read your newsletter. I appreciate that. And you, Everybody write, should. You, you write about a deal. It's interesting to me. And then at some point... Um, you then publish uh, elements of the newsletter. Usually, some some of the
3: elements of the newsletter, yeah.
2: And there was at least one case, I can't remember the deal, where uh, you wrote about something, it moved the market, but only once the thing had published. Do you Mm -hmm. find that
3: happens periodically? sometimes the newsletters weird. Everybody's newsletter is a little bit different in terms of when they publish. I, I publish a 10. Yeah, I think, honestly, because once it goes on a website, it shows up in certain search engines, I right. think, which I maybe I'm being totally cynical here. I think the algorithms aren't reading, you know, the boxes that are trading at these shops are not getting an email newsletter. Yeah. They're just not getting any of them. Once it shows up on the web and Google's crawled it, suddenly they see the ticker symbol or whatever they see and, and they react.
2: Have you ever thought about, well, since I can move the market, maybe I should figure out how to make sure that, The bots are reading. I don't know. The bots are reading. You don't care.
3: Uh, No, move the markets whenever the markets move. Again, again, I'm not trading any of these things, so it doesn't affect me.
2: God bless. Uh, We had Maggie Haberman talking to John Swan a bit about this, but I wanted to ask you more broadly. I know Uh, they were in my studio. They made my podcast late that day. (laughs) Sorry, dudes, but thanks for doing that, both of you guys. you are both a high profile thing lots of people talk about. When I'm out talking to investors and media people, they're a company they want to hear about. You're a company they want to hear about. And um, with that means you are also a punching bag. Absolutely. I don't think anyone's going after you.
3: No, uh, not it's the, here, it's, actually. It's, no. it's,
2: it's all the political stuff. Yeah, of right? course. It is. It's, it's, it's my Trump stuff. Trump, Trump. It's John
3: Tr- sure. Trump stuff.
2: Um, How much of that criticism is about Trump specifically and he's a lightning rod and and deserves a lot of the enmity uh, he's created versus you guys are a hot shit
3: startup? I think it's both. I, to be honest, we I've been surprised by how long it took. I mean, honestly, we launched two days before Trump's inauguration. Uh, so whatever, almost two years ago now. Uh, I think it took way longer for us to become a punching bag. I, the day we launched, or maybe the day after we launched, uh, we had a all-hands meeting in D.C., but there was only about 30 of us or so. And VandeHei pulled out uh, an article that had been written. I can't remember who had written it. Uh, criticism of Politico the day after Politico mm-hmm. launched, just ripping the living hell out of it. And he said, expect this Soon. And we waited and we waited and we waited and didn't show up. And eventually it did. Look, I I think there's certain things we obviously bring on ourselves. There are certain people who there's certain people in journalism who I think actively don't like what we do just because of the format of what we do. And it's antithetical to what they think the format of journalism should be. But the Trump thing, look, there are if you go through Twitter and, and you could figure out how to search it with us, there are people who are convinced we are in Trump's pocket. There yeah. are people who are equally convinced that we are as anti-Trump as you can be. We are either the most capitalistic, you know, fascists or we are communists. I mean, th- that stuff's all there. But and there's think,
2: a there's another real criticism, which is this this deliberate both sides thing that, that, that Jim there, in particular yep. advocates for. Mike does as well. Um that's a crazy stance to have in 2018, 2019, when one side is the devil, right? I think
3: if it's interesting. I think if you read AM, which is Mike's newsletter, which is the most political of our daily newsletters, obviously, and, and to be honest, has probably led with Trump 80% of the yeah. time this year, at least during the week. Uh, I don't think it is as both-sidery as people think. And I say this as someone who actively reads it each day and, and sees the test to make sure there's no, you know, to, yeah. to see if there are typos or things I, I want to, you know, say to him. Uh, I, I think he's been fairly critical in certain cases, but I think Yes, but
2: often it'll be like, boy, if, if Trump just hadn't done these terrible tweets, then look at all the accomplishments he could point I, to. And I, that's the I, kind I, of thing makes it see, maybe-,
3: maybe and, and so maybe I'm just being defensive and I don't read them that way yeah. as often. Um, I, I honestly think he's been pretty clear-headed about this. I will say this, we are intentionally not reflexively anti-Trump or reflexively yeah. pro-Trump. We don't We don't look at a story and think, oh, look, something bad happened for the White House. So let's make sure we write, let's make sure we, it's more, something bad happened for the White House. How important is this? Uh, you know, Trump tweeted this crazy thing. Well, is it, does it matter? You know, he's yeah. going to tweet eight times today. What are we going to focus on? Are we going to, let's focus on something that we think has some substance to it, positive, negative, or because it's going to impact people in a real way, or some of it's just
2: you no. guys publicly apologized for the way you handled the the HBO thing when and John and, yeah. and it's so far it's the the, the Trump shit just Yeah I it's know. so the, hard to track. But it was it was which has uh, affected but it, it was can no. you invade Canada, right? No, it wasn't invade it was No, it was, it was uh, 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 um
3: oh god, rescinding birthright citizenship. Yeah
2: yeah uh and so we screwed that up we screwed that up but then there was a subsequent story i think it was HuffPost post where someone got a hold of your slack logs yeah. and 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 basically there was a they're all just haters so ignore them is that is was, that a fair reflection of sort of the way you guys think internally no
3: it, it wasn't uh nick was that was our editor-in-chief uh nick johnson who was honestly was was joking it was a much long it was like mm-hmm. a whatever an hour-long editorial meeting and that was a brief point i get it like No, I think internally, we we take criticism to heart. You know, Swan, and this also got leaked, had a much longer internal Slack message to the group, and I can't remember how much of it got published or didn't. Uh, But look, I I think we're fairly self-reflective. There are certain things we think are wrong. Uh, We thought that some of the criticism – there was some criticism of that interview, which again appeared on our, our debut HBO show, which was, you know, that this was I think the word was bootlicker and that we were just yeah. genuflecting Trump. There was a lot of hard questions in there for him. There was a to me, there was a lot of response to certain things he said. That one thing about birthright citizenship, we screwed it up. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think – so I think there was reflection on that. But I think some of kind of the – I think that opened us up to a lot of stuff which came on top of it, which I didn't think was legitimate.
2: This is one of the things where being a media startup is way different than being a tech startup because a tech startup, if you are – if things are going well, you're a hot company and it goes for yeah. quite some time and you're generally not getting any kind of any kind of real scrutiny for a long right. time. and, and
3: you well, as you really said, reporters up. care about other reporters or right. care about other media
2: organizations. So, do you think this is now a permanent feature of your life? Is that is that uh, what's the what's the thing that is no longer Gawker Splinter ah. is going to be railing about you day in and day out, or do you think they eventually move on and move on to something else? Uh,
3: they'll. I, I don't think it'll be day in and day out. It'll it'll be when they've decided we've done something awful. I mean, the interesting thing, and Swan has said this too, is these organizations like Splinter when we have a scoop that they think is newsworthy. They run the scoop and then they yeah. analyze not not our not the journalism of it, but the thing, whatever the event is, positive or negative. Uh so we're a reliable source when they need us, and then we're, you know, we're a punching bag when when we've done something wrong. So be it. I mean, criticism's gonna come with this. That that is part, as you said, it's part of being a startup, certainly part of being a media startup, and particularly a media startup that regularly covers Trump in this environment.
2: You're up at five thirty every day, yeah. you turn your phone on, what's the first thing you read?
3: Uh probably Mike's newsletter, probably the test of Mike's newsletter. Okay. And what's I'm going the, to probably the, read that. What's the you know.
2: first non-Axios product you're reading?
3: First non-Axios product I'm reading? the Reuters, It's not a, It's not an email. It's a, the Reuters deals page in the morning. It, would, it used to be the Bloomberg one, but it now crashes my browser, so I've stopped that. You should fix that, Bloomberg. I know. It's killing me. Dan,
2: I want to do this for a long time. Thanks for doing it. Thank you, Peter. Thanks to you guys for listening. If you like this, please tell a friend about it. If you really liked it, go ahead and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine podcasts. Like this one. Thanks. Uh, thanks for our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media, who sell ads so you could listen to Recode Media for free, just like Axios. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits this show, and my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. I love that you listen. I will see you next week.
0: More to dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder.